Hello friends, this is the AlphaList podcast. I am your host Toby. The goal of the AlphaList podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. This podcast is proudly presented by the Haufe HR Chatbot. The Haufe HR Chatbot is a self-service tool that answers most important HR-related questions by your employees in a legally secure and fast and automated way. It comes with more than 300 pre-formulated answers and associated questions and is continuously updated and expanded by a professional editorial team. Haufe guarantees to answer with legally compliant and up-to-date content. It's simply a 24-7 service for employees. Whether in the office or remotely, employees receive a quick response at any time and from anywhere. It comes with a mood barometer. The chatbot automatically compiles regular insights on topics that are frequently requested in the company. It does not require major IT integration and is set up in no time. If you're interested, just visit haufe.de slash chatbot and with the coupon code AlphaList, you don't have to pay the setup fees. Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby, and today with me is Rachel, and Rachel is VP of Engineering at GitHub, and beforehand, she worked for Google and Ubisoft, so she has like a, or has a quite exciting career in terms of different stops as an individual contributor, but also as a manager, and uh, yeah, did I forget anything, Rachel? You want to add anything? <laughs> I'm not good with introductions. <laughs> oh, yeah, so. I mean, I've done a bunch of different stuff. So, you know, it'll be interesting to talk to you today. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, okay. So first, then we start with my my traditional question: How you <laughs> got there? Like, what is what is your nerd path? When was like your first moment where you thought, okay, computers, that's it, that's my the thing I'm gonna do till I'm old? Um, wh when was it? And yeah, and was I it? had that moment. Yeah, I really did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My nerd path, actually, you know, I think I go back to the beginning and I feel extremely lucky, actually, that I found it. So, you know, I'd always been a really a good student in school, but I went into college just no idea, not knowing at all what I wanted to do. You know, I, I knew I was really good at math. I'd won several um, sort of regional math competitions in high school. But, you know, I, I didn't understand that there was a job that came out of that. And I like to be, you know, practical. So I, I went into general science in college and it was an unsettling feeling for me because I really didn't have a vision of where I was going. And so after my first year, it really came time I had to pick and I still I had no idea what I wanted to do. And back then, you know, if you had good grades, people would say pre-med, you know, you're going to be a doctor. That's that's the career path. But Toby, there's this small detail that 
the sight of blood makes me kind of woozy and, you know, kind of pass out. So uh, that just doctor was completely off the table for me. And, and weirdly enough, engineering didn't even cross my mind. You know, I wish it had, but somehow, you know, I just, I just didn't think it was for me. I think subconsciously I had in my head and I hate to admit it that engineering is for boys. And so it just, it just wasn't there for me. So, you know, I liked my first chemistry class and I got a job working for my chemistry professor. I liked him a lot. So I was like, okay, we'll try this chemistry. And honestly, Toby, it was, it was so miserable. I mean, I'm clumsy. Labs were terrible. I'd be breaking stuff. You need to be so precise with everything you're doing. There's so much memorization. I mean, so boring. Oh gosh, it was awful. But this is my nerd path moment. I feel so lucky that the chemistry program I was in had this requirement that you had to take intro to computer science. And, you know, if I could go back and find out who designed that curriculum, honestly, I cannot thank them enough because I went to that first computer science class. The professor's just like old um, guy who'd been doing this for a really long time, walked up to the whiteboard and started walking us through sorting algorithms, you know, like merge sort, bubble sort. (laughs) I was just sitting there, I was stunned. And I was, you know, just immediately hooked and I switched my major, major almost immediately after that first class. You know, it was like math, it was problem solving, it was fun. Didn't matter that I was clumsy. You know, my roommates would make fun of me because I was constantly calling them into my room to be like, you know, look at what I, I just wrote this program and it does this. And, you know, it was just a real life changing moment for me. It's so wonderful. Um, so then uh, while still in school, I got a job at a startup, an ISP, Internet Service Provider, um, and a startup. It was a lot of fun. You know, we were, this is in the dot-com boom, so quite a, quite a long time ago. We were building early websites, you know, using Microsoft Access databases, building shopping carts, you know, it all seemed so novel. It was, you know, the best job I'd ever had to date, so that was fantastic. And then um, when I graduated, I, you know, I wanted to make a bit more money, so I took a job in video games at a company called Ubisoft. And I stayed there for six years. And again, you know, I just learned a ton about being a developer. I also learned some lessons um, that have served me later in my career about, you know, working on teams, what it took to ship a product on time, for instance. When when we first started there, we were, you know, always missing get- deadlines for our games, but we got a lot better. We started doing agile development. We started, um, you know, improving the quality of our games as we were working, doing test-driven development and so on. So, you know, I really did uh, learn a lot in those six years. But again, you know, there was stuff about that job that was, that was really hard, I would say, um, mostly in terms of the environment. When I look back, I think at some point we were around 500 software developers and only three of us were women. So, you know, it just it just wasn't an ideal environment, really. And so I decided I wanted out. I wanted to do something very different. I had done... Well, at Ubisoft, I had become a TL. In fact, I think I was the first female tech lead at the company. And I had made enough money that it gave me a certain amount of flexibility and freedom, which, you know, was really a privilege. So uh, I decided to go back to school. I did an MBA. And then I spent, you know, maybe almost two years in consulting, working in technology strategy, which was just such a different environment. I mean, I had to wear a suit. I got to work with women for the first time, which was really great. You know, I made friends. Um, you know, that was wonderful. I did a lot more writing and talking in that job, though, and it wasn't so much doing. Um, you know, we we worked on several projects that were sort of large scale process and system reengineering, where 
customers were in the oh, just an absolute world of hurt by the time they called in consultants. And so with that job, I really felt like it was more about cleaning up messes versus really innovating. And, and was it and was so, it that you that you had that idea that this changes your career uh, to go into consulting or I you know like after six years of working in video games and you know never working with another woman software engineer and uh, you know I really felt you know just ready to do something entirely different I thought I wanted to use the other side of my brain doing an MBA was you know kind of a, a lark it was it was fun I got to travel you know it was great but yeah I did think. I'm changing my career. I'm kind of, you know, it was kind of my moment of maybe I'm kind of done with core tech. But then after, you know, I think it was actually only 18 months in consulting. I was like, no, <laughs> this is not what I want. I really miss, I really miss, you know, being in core technology. And, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of great things about consulting, but wearing a suit, you know, even they wanted me to wear makeup at some point. I mean, come on, that's just not my vibe. So, uh, you know, I was lucky enough that I got the recruiting call from Google. And at the time, I was still living in Canada. I'm from Canada. And, you know, it just hadn't occurred to me really to look for jobs outside of Canada. But, uh, you know, I did some, some phone calls and then they offered me a free trip to San Francisco Bay Area to do on-sites. Of course, I'm going to go try it out. And, you know, one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, I was back in Canada and a moving truck showed up at my place and it was relocating to San Francisco. So that was a really exciting time. And then, you know, I was at Google for almost 12 years. I worked in developer infrastructure for eight. I became a manager at Google and then a manager of managers. And eventually I was in a director role, leading a large swath of Google's developer infrastructure group, sort of everything surrounding Google's highly scaled monorepo, our custom source control systems, uh, cloud-based development environments, code search, code reviews, so on and so on. One of the favorite teams that I managed there was doing um, research into developer productivity, actually, which is really fascinating stuff. Um, lots of work on how we were able to optimize the Google developer stack. And so that's something that I've had a passion for ever since. And um, so essentially, you, you, you built Google's deployment back then and the whole connected services, all the metrics connected to that and connected to developer productivity then. Um, is that correct? Or? Yeah, I mean, we... When I started at Google, we were, um, the company was still on Perforce. And it was an interesting time because um, Perforce, you know, there's a single very powerful server that, you know, tens of thousands of developers were connecting to. And it was really the core of a lot of our, our developer infrastructure, right? So, um, so many APIs, um, so many tools, scripts, systems were built on top of the Perforce API, if you will. So the, the, one of the earliest projects I worked on that I worked on for many years and that I became a manager on was a system called Piper. I, I published a, a paper about it uh, several years ago, but yeah, it was sort of a globally distributed, highly consistent uh, version control system custom to Google built in the cloud and became the foundation of all the uh, developer systems at Google. It was just a fascinating project. And so much fun to work on. I worked on with some fantastic people who are still friends of mine today. Um, Does the system still yeah, exist? So it, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, I gave a, a great talk on it, actually. 
when I was pregnant with my second child. So if you look on YouTube for my name, you can see a, a very large version of me when I was nine months pregnant on stage talking about that system. And it was, you know, the first time we talked about it openly to the world. And it was um, pretty exciting to be able to share what we had accomplished there. You know, it just was such a massive, massive monorepo. Was, was that but the yeah, reason so, for, for GitHub to hire you, essentially? I mean, that you built all that, the, 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 the engineering platform that you're also now building? My experience building. is just highly overlapping. Yeah, Let's put it yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah, yes, yeah. my experience is highly overlapping. I always paid attention to GitHub. It was always interesting to see what was happening in open source versus you know what we were doing internally at Google. Because I remember um, I already had like Jason Warner on the podcast who was back then or beforehand working for Heroku. Uh, Jason Warner, you know, he was he was the one who hooked me to come to GitHub for ah, sure. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, eight years of developer infrastructure and then within Google, I decided I wanted to try something new. So I switched to Google Cloud, which was a emerging business at the time. And I was leading an area of Google Cloud around um, the data platform and insights. We built a, a really cool recommendations platform to surface recommendations to Google Cloud customers. And it was really fascinating in, in Google Cloud to see sort of the inception of that business as well as the significant cultural change that Google engineers needed to go through in order to be successful in that business. And, you know, there was some like friction at the beginning of Google Cloud because you had all these very good engineers coming in who were used to this very engineering centric culture and engineers know best. And like, I'm not going to tolerate friction in my system. So if I see it, I'm just going to fix things. And, you know, Google cloud obviously is an enterprise focused business, which is entirely different. Mm. So you needed to rely a lot more on PM. You couldn't really know yourself exactly how your customers were going to be using your product. So um, yeah, that was, that was fascinating. Um, uh, but then, yeah, sorry. I, I'm like, rambling on you can no no <laughs> i just, just want to say my, my wife works for google <laughs> and i know that the sales side um of both 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 areas is also quite different right the the google cloud so sales different. side yeah. from, from the normal yeah and i mean google cloud grew up in infrastructure where i was working in infrastructure and you know that's just like the cultural difference was really really big actually when i left uh google i did a thomas curry and did an exit interview with me And uh, I thought, you know, if anyone, if anyone can get a handle on this cultural stuff, he can. He he he's extremely bright, and I was really impressed in in the interactions I had with him. Um, but yeah, I was ready to do something different. I you know I I wanted a new challenge. I actually spent a ton of time talking to one of your other former guests, Jean Michel Lemieux, when he was CTO at Shopify. And at that time, I was seriously considering moving back to Canada and um, joining Shopify. And he had a really good pitch for me and I, I like him a lot. So, um, you know, that was interesting. But then, you know, of course, like you mentioned, I got the call from the other one of your former guests, Jason Warner, who was CTO of GitHub at the time. And, you know, like I said, I had always kept an eye on GitHub given how overlapping it was with the developer infrastructure, infrastructure space that I had run for so long at Google. And in fact, uh, I had actually participated in negotiations at Google where we were trying to acquire GitHub, <laughs> which of course failed. <laughs> so GitHub was definitely on my mind, right? And so Jason talked me into joining GitHub without, you know, really giving me too much clarity on what my job and what my role would be. You know, um, you know, I knew I would be an engineering leader, but um, you know, I was lucky enough to be at a point in my career where 
I have to say, I have a lot of privilege in being able to, to pick what I get to work on. And I was able to, you know, pick to work on something that felt really good to me. I'm an extremely mission driven person. And so I look at what GitHub's doing for the world. And, you know, I just, I really couldn't, couldn't say no to Jason. So he convinced me and I, now it's been almost three years that I've been at GitHub. Okay, cool. And um, you now are like leading engineering essentially um, or heading. I lead most of product engineering okay. at GitHub. Yeah. So the engineering organization is, um, you know, well over a thousand people and my, my team's about 500 people. Wow. Wow. Um, and yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I started on a team focused on GitHub's data platform. And, you know, about a month after I joined, we started onboarding this fantastic company that we acquired called Semel. And that kicked off our new advanced security business. So, you know, I've been working on that. That's just been a fantastic group to manage. We've grown that area so much. Um, you know, now I'm, I'm running most of product engineering for GitHub. You know, I have to I have to pinch myself sometimes because I, I mentioned I'm mission driven and, you know, I get to work on all these world changing technologies like Copilot, Codespaces, GitHub's advanced security offering, of course. I also manage the core of GitHub's platform where, you know, we're, we're starting to try to bring more innovation with, you know, surprise, surprise, a focus on developer productivity, which is something I care a lot about. Um, so we've been working on things like a new code search experiment that, uh, experience that I think is going to really, really be powerful for helping people um, with software development. We have a new projects experience for project management. Um, you know, we have an ever improving uh, software supply chain offering, you know, just lots more to come. So really get to work on a breadth of stuff that's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's that's like so many exciting things coming coming out of your 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 teams there. Um, I mean GitHub yeah. Actions for example has been like for me mind-blowing i mean it's similar to other cicd solutions but it makes so much sense to have it like really connected and closely connected mm -hmm. and closer connected than you do with i don't know circle ci so i i really love that and also like product is just logic so it really uh, it, it's it's all also like very good quality so how do you how do you how do you succeed with that and, and what is actually hard like what what is the hard stuff at github like What, what makes your day and, and your work very, like sometimes bumpy? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we've, we've grown by three X over the past, you know, the engineering group over the past three years while I've been there has grown by three. That's not an easy thing to do. Right. Um, you know, I think we've done, you know, a fantastic job. If I do say myself of innovating over the last several years, but you know, so many of the products that are in our portfolio are, are relatively new. Right. So, Three years ago, when I started, like you said, Actions had just launched. Our advanced security business didn't exist. Code spaces didn't exist. Copilot didn't exist. You know, all too many things to name didn't exist. And so, you know, when you when you grow like that, we've also you know significantly increased the complexity of our our platform. And so, we're really on this journey of engineering maturity, which I think is just necessary and hard. You know, as our platform continues to grow and scale. There's certain inflection points where you just you need to change the way you work. So, as far as I remember, your, your, ago, your platform is written in Rails, right? Partly, right? We have a monolith, yeah, and the monolith is written in Rails. Increasingly, we're using a lot more Go. Um, you know, there's definitely like one of the things I've been very focused on right now is um, you know working with some of our senior engineers on our future architecture and what's that going to look like and what happens to our monolith. 
And um, what do we need to do to effectively build outside of the monolith? Because um, in, in many ways, you know, building in the monolith is the easy path, but there's costs that we're occurring every time we do that, right? So we're looking a lot at, um, you know, I, I actually read this great Medium article recently from an ex-colleague from Google called Jonathan Zunger, who talked about layers of a system. And that's kind of the conversation that we've been having a lot at GitHub lately is, you know, we've had, we've built a lot of products and we've had, um, you know, a lot of focus on sort of that uh, user facing layer, but we need to, in order to scale, think a lot more about the layers below that. So like what shared services are we building? What building blocks do we have? What paved paths are we creating so that engineers aren't reinventing the wheel? So that we are building, you know, secure, sustainable, maintainable, and scalable systems. What infrastructure are we using below that, even, um, to make sure that we have, you know, the database technology we need, and so on? Um, you know, increasingly, we're moving to Azure because, um, you know, as much as we're an independent company, we're owned by Microsoft, and so there's a lot of advantage to just um, using Azure Cloud and Azure Technologies. Um, you know, as an example, when I joined GitHub. Uh, the data team had some, you know, bespoke kind of ML uh, technologies that were um, being used for running and training models and so on. And, and it's sort of like fragile systems that took a lot of maintenance yeah. work. I mean, every, every instead, like, you know, a few years ago, like every company built that, like every larger company built such tools, right? right? And now they're like basically useless because there's so many, like so more. So much more. Yeah, we're, we're just using Azure ML. Yeah. You know, let's let's just not reinvent yeah. that wheel. Let's focus on the novel stuff that we're doing on our teams, yeah. Yeah. and as much as possible, rely on on infrastructure that we don't need. But we have, you know, we definitely have a lot of opportunity. Um, as we think, you know, like many years ago, every GitHub engineer knew one another, and so you know there was kind of this um, cultural sense of like, well. Folks are good. They'll just work on the right things. You know, we don't really need to coordinate too much because um, we have, you know, a set of people who know one another and they'll just pick, pick good work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with the complexity of our platform right now, that's just, just not possible, mm -hmm. right? It's also not possible for everyone to know everyone. So we need to put more systems in place to assure, ensure that we're being effective. Again, with, you know, paved paths and focusing on, you know, what our developer workflow is. Um, expanding expectations and, and sort of measurement of our operational health. Uh, you know, a great example that we introduced recently is how we manage fan out work, for instance. So fan out work is, you know, when you decide to get something done, maybe it's a large scale code base evolution to clean up some technical debt. And it's something that not just one team can do, but lots of different teams all have to do. Something that was historically difficult at GitHub um, and the way it used to work, you know, an engineer somewhere would have a great idea and they would write, uh, you know, a discussion post or a team post internal to GitHub and say, hey, look, like uh, I realize this API we're using is, is uh, or this technology we're using, you know, it's, it's not good. We, we should refactor and remove it. And look, here's my PR where I removed it from my project. Now, everyone, please go and do this, right? And, you know, perhaps when there were a small number of engineers, uh, you know, working with influence to get stuff like that done could work, but we're we're not at that scale now. We're a global company with people working, you know, all around the world, and so we recently have established a, a process for fan out work where centrally we decide, you know, we want to understand what's the scope of, uh, you know, a fan out project that's being pr proposed, 
What's it going to cost? What's the benefit? Okay, let's choose wisely and pick a few of these things every quarter and track them. You know, our TPM organization, our project managers can track our progress. Let's really get this stuff done so that we make a, you know, measurable difference. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, in the past, we'd seen many sort of like half done refactorings. And I think, you know, sometimes that there's some benefit, but most of the time, you know, you're probably better off not starting than stopping halfway through, right? So we're doing sort of more, um, more sort of effective decision-making around where we're investing in order to help um, scale and make our engineering organization effective. Yeah, I can imagine that like in at, at your org size, it then happens that like essentially it's it's fanned out in a certain part of the organization and then another part still has to work with it yeah. and the, the, the set of technologies well, that you, you know, want to move and then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing is with a large team, you know, you know, we, we're one GitHub, right? And so, uh, you know, we can share knowledge and resources. And in some cases, you know, we've done some great fan out recently. We did, um, we're working on a project uh, to clean up feature flags in the monolith. So, you know, the monolith has existed for 15 years mm -hmm. and, you know, feature flags are an excellent tool for deployment. But when they hang around for a long time, you know, they affect code readability. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's, you know, we had feature flags that had been turned on for years, feature flags that had never been turned on and probably worse yet, you know, some feature flags that were deployed for some specific enterprise customers and not for others. And, you know, customers are not going to be having a good time if they're on some, you know, bespoke flag that, you know, we're not maybe properly aware about, right? So we did this effort, um, but we, that was a fan out project that we kind of staffed centrally. So we got a bunch of motivated people who were like, yeah, we really want to do this. We want to get this done. It's going to be better for everyone. Mm -hmm. And they sort of went through and yeah, they had to work with teams in a lot of cases to figure out who owns this feature flag and can it be safely removed. Mm. But, um, you know, it's been fantastic, fantastic progress to see. Love doing stuff like that. You know, I get, I, I get a kick out of cleaning up technical debt and it's, you know, that's really a, a developer productivity win as well, because, you know, how many people were reading, you know, the, if, then you know scenario for those feature flags that now don't have to yeah 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 and how much work it is to maintain that feature um productive right uh, that that mm -hmm. yeah I, i i really yeah i really can't imagine that this like at your your scale is not not a nice thing to have um And uh, what what about like um you you mentioned you you become more and more like a Microsoft organization what about like very central things? I don't know if things? I mentioned that. But <laughs> well, <laughs> you said that you're, you're yeah, moving more and more. Yeah, where we can rely Azure, on Microsoft yeah. Technic. Um, yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. But um, yeah, becoming a Microsoft organization, maybe not. Um, but what about things like like central things like different pro programming languages? I mean, what what about .NET? Is that something you would consider? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, actually, uh, you know, code spaces. Uh, was a really fantastic collaboration across the VS Code team and uh, GitHub. And so, um, you know, we have a bunch of that stack is uh, .NET, C Sharp. And that's not something we're going to re rewrite just for the fun of it, right? It's, it's effective, working well. And so, yeah, we do think about, um, we do, you know, since I've been at GitHub, some, you know, some of the other engineering maturity type things that I introduced is uh how we do design reviews 
and using design review as a communication tool, right? Because as the complexity of the platform grew so much, uh, you know, it would frequently happen that someone would announce something and then, yeah, well, oh, we were working on that over here, or, you know, that's not aligned with this vision that we had. So we have this sort of cascading levels of design review and, and for the most important, you know, designs, we bring those um, to something that uh, we call the principal council um, to figure out. But um, yeah, one of the things I had asked, uh, I, I can explain this concept of principal council, but it's effectively our most senior uh, individual contributors coupled with with me and my peer in in engineering leadership. But one of the things I had asked them to do was let's come up with design guidance so that all these design reviews that are coming up, that people have a foundation that they don't have to be like, um, you know, uh, I get, you know, should I, I build this in the monolith in Ruby because that's what I did on my last project? Or can we give sort of like clear definitions of like, well, if this condition exists, you build it here and it's written in Go versus if this condition exists, you know, building in monolith. And so we had made a couple of attempts at that and then realized, well, you can't just you know, like just picking what programming language you use is like right at the scratching the surface of what the questions are really, really, we needed to do this broader mm. um, sort of future architecture plan. And that's what we're working on now where we're thinking of layers of the system. We're thinking about what shared services we need. Are there sort of core primitives that we're going to build? Uh, I think in the long run, you know, our monolith likely becomes our UI layer because most everything connects into that. And increasingly, um, you're, we're working on things that we have a project called app partitioning, and it's effectively componentizing our monolith so that we're getting cleaner API boundaries between um, the different logical systems within the monolith. Whether that ultimately leads to splitting services out of the monolith, you know, we'll see. We're, it's a journey that we're on figuring it out. But, um, you know, we're really investigating that, that sort of the full stack of where we're going, which then will lead to, you know, answers around things like programming language, but for now it's mostly Go and Ruby. And, and do you have a tool to communicate your the, the components of your stack? Like for example, a tech radar or something like that where people understand, okay, maybe, I don't know, I'd rather not do it in Ruby because Ruby is no longer the way to do it at GitHub. Maybe I do it with .NET or maybe I do it with Go. Is that something you use or how do you do that? I mean, that's what we're aiming towards, right? Like GitHub is built on GitHub. That's one of the mm -hmm. things I, you know, I love about GitHub. And when we do work, on our systems, when we do work on our internal developer productivity, it's helping our own developers. It's also testing our products and making them better for users. So, you know, we use repos uh, for communication. We use GitHub discussions for communication. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we sort of regularly report out. We have these council meetings where we take up some of the hardest topics. Really, um, you know, this principal council that I run is about aligned technical decision-making and it's a tool for all of engineering to say like, Hey, you know, I want to start using, let's say this database technology. Uh, but you know, I'm not sure how that's going to work on GitHub enterprise server, which is our on-prem server deployment or in our future, um, cloud-based, um, you know, platform as a service offering. And so, you know, is this something that I can do? And like, what are the, what are the constraints? And, you know, that's a tool for any, anyone in engineering to bring big questions that they don't feel can be decided within the realm of their own team, right? We really want teams to have agency on making the decisions that apply to them about the novel work that they're doing and so on. But when it comes to bigger infrastructure questions or investment questions or cross-team questions, we have this 
ability to bring these bigger questions to a group who's going to make thoughtful discussions and then we'll communicate them back. We use, you know, GitHub issues, GitHub projects, <laughs> sort of all our communication is with, within the, the GitHub platform. Mostly. So, Occasionally we'll write a Google Doc still, you know, because Google Docs are really good for iterative um, commenting and, and working. But then when something's locked, you know, let's bring it into a repo. Okay, okay. So that is essentially like a anonymous post box where you can write your ideas to and then uh, you, 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 you get a decision back or what is it? You know, we're not at that scale yet of hopefully needing anonymous stuff. We do have, you know, good anonymous mechanisms mm -hmm. for giving feedback. But for big questions, it's usually something an engineer is actually working on and engaged in and wants to work with. Um, you know, other engineers to find a solution. So it's not usually anonymous. What we what we do have that's anonymous is something um, I introduced probably about a year and a half ago. We do a, a twice a year, we do a, it's called the DevSat survey. It's a developer productivity happiness survey. And that has been fantastic, right? Because, um, you know, it's really focused on the internal GitHub developer experience. And, you know, we're really asking people about the various jobs to be done and where they find friction and, you know, asking them about the tools that we use and where they found friction. We even ask questions around, you know, team practices, psychological safety on teams, decision making on teams, on call, the experience of on call, how much, you know, um, unplanned work versus planned work. You know, there's a whole whole set of questions that we go through. And then we provide, you know, anonymized reports to managers and to leadership. And that really helps um, inform our investment decisions. So that's a different type of decision making. But I think it's really powerful because, you know, for instance, you know, in, in the past year, we've moved, uh, you know, our standard development is now all on code spaces, which has been great, right? So we went from local macOS development to um, cloud-based code spaces development. And, you know, we just we put out a survey recently and it was able to add some questions specifically about code spaces in it around you know any friction involved in using code spaces within github and then you know that's a wealth of information for the code spaces team that they would get some of it right people would would say some things but when folks have this anonymous survey in front of them they tend to give you know more information we can get it's not just maybe the squeaky wheels we can see where there's a real trend where there's something more important because more people have responded and then you know the code spaces team takes that they can then you know, respond in terms of the investments they're making in code spaces. But in turn, one of the lovely things is then that ends up influencing the code spaces product for our customers in the long run as well. So you really use it all over the place, the code spaces now? Is it like in the whole org? Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I mean, there's some places where there's specific development that hasn't migrated to code spaces yet. But yeah, it's, you know, for onboarding, it's been lovely, right? Uh, as a new developer. Even for me, you know, like I'm not doing a lot of coding. Uh, I'm mostly just, you know, playing around with our systems and stuff. But if I, I want to jump in quickly, I don't have to worry about, you know, setting up my local environment. I can just launch a code space yep. and go. It's, it's just, I, we're definitely not optimizing development for, you know, managers such as myself. Yep. But I can say it's a, a joy for me as well. And certainly for new developers, I mean, I think especially, you know, when you come to a new company, there's a lot of stress and sort of, anxiety and a lot of people feel imposter syndrome and the last thing you need is getting stuck in some like setup issues in your local environment whereas code spaces just makes mm. it you know, so much also, also for preview environments right uh, that's, that's yeah also, also absolutely good. yeah yeah it's like the, those moments when you i don't know 
deploy something on a preview environment and it takes like, I don't know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I don't know how long your deployments take. That can be very frustrating, right? How do you, do you, by the way- We definitely have more work to do, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you have that context switch um, and you go away, you go to the coffee machine or whatever you do then. Um, maybe you switch to a different task and then you come back and you don't remember where you were and so on. Um, do you have any, like you mentioned that you have developer productivity metrics, do you have anything um, that, that measures that um, at, at GitHub or like generally maybe from your past at, at Google, was there a big learning you, you, you made um, like how to actually um, how to actually fight that um, and, and, and good metrics that you could recommend that, that people can use to... Uh, developer productivity metrics, so fraught. You know, I've worked in that uh, area for a long time, did a lot of work there at Google. Um, you know, actually, I really like the anonymous survey for um, getting feedback on developer productivity because, uh, you know, we are, we have, we're working on on metrics for sure at GitHub, but you always want to be really careful about what behaviors you're incentivizing, right? So, um, you know, at one point we did um, start publishing, for instance, code review turnaround time. Um, but, you know, you don't want that, you don't want to see people's names associated with the really long, mm. you know, <laughs> wait or so on. I, I think, you know, you want to be really careful that my mission with developer productivity is, you know, the rising tide lifting all bo boats, not looking for performance issues with individual people, mm. right? Mm. Um, Google have very sophisticated uh, Google developer productivity work, which I think, you know, is inspiring. We did some some really cool stuff where, uh, you know, I'll give you an example because um, most people were working in our cloud-based development environments back then. Uh, you could almost see every keystroke that people made if you wanted to dig in and analyze. So the team at Google, uh, you know, was able to spot some cases where, you know, a compiler error message was giving someone a lot of trouble, for instance, they could see how many builds happened uh, from when the compiler error message first appeared to when it was resolved. And then they would look and work on the wording and the language to see if they could reduce that time to make it clear, even, you know, proposing uh, proposed fixes and stuff like that. I think that is lovely work. I love that kind of thing where you, you can really go in and, and sort of use information and data to make people uh, more effective. There's also work the team had done um, on context switching, which you mentioned, which is really fascinating. There's uh, a group of researchers who worked on the cost of context switching, which is actually really high. And, um, you know, we, we sort of recognized at the time that there were um, different types of builds that were happening, right? So you had builds that were happening as part of iterative development where, where people were working and they were waiting on their builds, right? And then you had builds that happened that were kicked off by automation or that were kicked off by a human, but a human who was at a natural context switch moment. So for instance, I just sent a PR out for review, you know, that running that build, but I've walked away, you know, I'm, I'm working on something else or I'm going to meeting, whatever the case might be, right? And so um, the team there did some cool work around optimizing uh, which builds moved up to the top of the build queue and which ones were pushed back. And so really putting, um, you know, human initiated builds uh, where people were blocked doing iterative development, really trying to prioritize those to the top of the queue so they would complete as quickly as possible. That, that's certainly a lot of fun too. 
but but your your like if you would recommend something to 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 a young startup let's say you have 10 developers and you still want to want to want to be aware um how productive your team is then the good old poll is the best thing to do <laughs> like really talking you know, to your I developers mean, i think uh yeah nothing is more valuable than talking to your developers yeah. Uh, that said, you know, if I'm going to look at metrics, I'm going to look at build time. I'm going to look at uh, deployment success. Uh, you know, how often do you have to do rollbacks? Uh, I'm going to look at metrics around operational health. So like how much downtime do you have? Uh, how quick are you to recover from downtime? Um, you know, I think, you know, classic uh, metrics like that. Sometimes, um, you know, the set Dora metrics, if you're familiar mm -hmm. with that, uh, Nicole Forsgren. Uh, actually uh, worked with me at Google for a while. Um, we acquired Dora when I was working there on this stuff. So uh, she's a world expert on that. But um, yeah, there's there's definitely some good metrics to look at. And I tend to prefer those team level metrics versus the individual metrics. Yeah, you know, you certainly never want to see like how many lines of code written or you know yeah. how many PRs submitted. And if so, yes, you want to put it on team level and you actually want to compare it week week to week or month to month. Right, you don't want to see. Yeah, because they mean, can't, you can't compare one yeah. team to another, right? Yeah. Like one team doing greenfield development, you expect them to be moving a lot faster than the team that is maintaining the legacy system. And so you need to, with any metrics that you use, bring context and understandings in order to interpret those metrics. So if the team doing legacy development deploy times are are you know increasing, uh, build success is uh, d decreasing, you know, then you have something to look at, right? that change over time okay and was it like at, at at your scale was there any moment when you thought okay now like productivity really increased um like was it for example code spaces or was there any any let's say moment when you said ah now my job is is, is that much better um so many things changing are changing for me and and for for my teams that that it's really a It's really like an aha moment or? <laughs> I can tell you, uh, you know, for me, my life is constant context switching. So um, I think my job is so different from, you know, the job of the, all the engineers that I love that I that I work with. And so I'll, I'll turn it around and, and talk about them and talk about the experience of using Copilot. I think Copilot, GitHub Copilot, which uh, GA'd recently is has been that aha moment for a lot of folks I've talked to. It has, you know, it's not perfect, um, but it has been a real productivity tool. I think that's what it is more than anything mm -hmm. is a productivity tool. Can't It can't, you know, figure out what you need to work on. It can't figure out what you need to do, right? But when you know what you need to do, it can help you avoid some of the toil, some of the boilerplate. Um, it can help you, you know, like, I, I mean, I've played around with it and it's, Copilot, you surprised me. Like, what's happening here? Uh, you know, uh, but it's it's um, you know, I've I've heard from engineers even who you know sometimes you have to switch the stack you're working on. Like you mentioned, you know, with Codespaces we have you know dot .net, some .net in the back end, and then there's also Ruby in the in the front end. And you know, folks are switching back and forth. And you know, when you're context switching, Copilot can just help you you know get there and like get it right and you know call the right API, etc. And, um, you know, save you time having to, um, you know, look into documentation and so on. So if I think about productivity aha moments, there's rarely, rarely those, right? Like it's an accumulation over time of good practices, of learning, 
of investments. You know, one thing we've done in my time at GitHub is significantly increase the amount of investment in our own developer experience teams. But Copilot is like one example, I think, where there was, you know, I think we see, you know, for folks who are using Copilot, um, it's something like 40% of the lines of code in the files that they're writing were suggested by Copilot, which is pretty incredible. Um, and well, code spaces. I mean, now is the time for a perfect product pitch, right? Uh, I mean, I can't imagine oh, that for <laughs> for like a monolith for a monolith company, it's like kind of a, if you have to spin up, let's say, ten different services to get to work and have to download data and then have some seed data somewhere, and you just need like a normally like a dock that is that long um, that that you have to like steps you have to. You have to do until yeah. you have a productive setup. Um, I can imagine that. Yeah, no, code spaces is a, is a big one too. And, you know, I feel like with all these products, you know, we're pretty early in the journey. I mean, I think code spaces, you know, um, Copilot, we, we've targeted individuals first and code spaces, we targeted enterprises first, but, you know, we need to, we need to cross over there. There's um, just so much more that can be done in terms of um, looking at how we use code spaces. Code spaces is, you know, compute that we can attach to various, you know, workflows in the, in our developer, um, developer workflow. And so, uh, you know, I think there's a lot more to be done in terms of code spaces and, and really bringing it to the masses. I mean, you know, when I worked at Google folks, we were doing development in the cloud a long time ago, but that was something that was sort of limited to these elite developers at, in companies that were spending tons and tons of money on developer infrastructure. And now, you know, we really want to bring this stuff to the world, which is, um, you know, very exciting. And I think, you know, a lot of what feels great about GitHub is that we have all these building blocks, we have all these pieces of developer workflow that we can pull together in increasingly interesting ways. So while, you know, code spaces started as, you know, you know, your ID um, with your environments in the cloud, you know, how can we how can we bring code spaces to Jupyter Notebooks, for instance, and, you know, in, in our platform? Um, I think there's so many moments. One of the things I love about having the 50,000-foot view of GitHub is seeing all these building blocks and how they can fit together. And, you know, we just have so many examples of, you know, one of the projects I'm working on uh, recently is, um, is uh, Code Search, which is really exciting. And I think, you know, really it's a tool that can really help you find and understand what you're working on. Right. And, uh, you know, I also in the software supply chain group that I run, we have dependency graph and dependency graph is this building block that now, you know, we can use in code search to help understand personalized rankings for people. Like what should we rank higher for them? Um, you know, dependency graph is also of course, very important for a lot of our vulnerability detection. And then as part of our code search project, we're also working on um, this fantastic technology um, from our semantic code team for code navigation. And we're starting to get into um, cross-repo code navigation. And then again, dependency graph layers in because it helps you um, sort of like get a good signal on what version to, of a, a particular software to jump to. But then beyond that, this, this semantic code uh, sort of very, very, um, you know, sophisticated work that's happening has been really useful in the security business because we have, you know, Dependabot, which, um, you know, goes around and will alert you when you're relying on, uh, you know, some um, 
code that has a vulnerability. And we can use semantic analysis actually to reduce the noise with dependabot alerts to say like, actually, even though you're depending on this package that has a vulnerability, your particular usage of that package never touches the code path in question. So we don't actually need to alert you on it. Um, you know, Copilot, you're looking at, you know, we, we have Copilot, um, you know, as part of your editing experience, but what about Copilot as part of the code review experience? You know, start to think about that. Um, advanced security, I mean, we've just started integrating alerting into the PR flow, which is um, really exciting. And like you mentioned, actions are everywhere. You know, we, we recently have been experimenting more and more with uh, prevention workflows. So for instance, um, looking at your dependencies at code review at PR time, and seeing whether you're actually introducing a dependency on something that's vulnerable and then alerting about that. So, you know, I think a lot of the the fun that comes from this job is that, you know, looking at these big this big picture and like piecing all the all the bits together. And then slowly step by step, step by step building that platform that yeah. everyone wants to use, right? Every developer yeah, wants to yeah. use and you would yourself love to use. And yeah, I can imagine that Absolutely. And you know, where can we innovate and what can we do, um, you know, that's novel to delight developers and, you know, make them happy. What, from your perspective, we closely have to, uh, shortly have to come to the end. Uh, from your perspective, if you could give some hints of, like, kind of things that made your organization at scale much more a lovely place to work for, um, is there anything you, you, you would recommend any, any, any tips you have, like things to, to introduce things to change, uh, very quickly, um, that you would recommend okay, quickly. To sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, quickly is maybe not my forte, huh? Um, okay. So, you know, I would think a lot about your investment portfolio. I mean, folks are happy when they feel like they get to do quality work. Um, you know, there's always a balance. But I think, uh, you know, one of the things I found in one of our first um, DevSat surveys that we did was people felt like they were oversubscribed all the time. So what's your investment portfolio? You know, let's be sure that you're not just always scrambling to launch features, but also having healthy investment in cleaning up your technical debt and letting engineers, you know, like if an engineer is going to hit the same friction over and over again, that's just demoralizing. So give folks the time to go in and be able to fix those those things. I think, uh, you know, sometimes we call it psychological safety on teams, but I also like to think of it as like, are we having fun? <laughs> I, I have a, a manager on my team who says, you know, what's the laugh factor of this team? And I kind of love that because it's like, how much time do you spend joking around and laughing with your colleagues? You know, we're all human beings and, uh, you know, it's good to feel those relationships. You know, GitHub is a remote first company, so we're all re working remotely, but you know, are we spending time on getting to know one another, laughing, having fun? I think that's, you know, really, really important. And then, you know, the most important thing of all, I think, you know, certainly at my level is communication and effective decision making. So, you know, let's make sure that teams are not spinning. Let's not, let's make sure that a decision's not taking too long. How do we do healthy escalation, get things resolved? How do we know who is the decision maker in any case? We tend to use the term DRI, which stands for directly responsible individual. So let's put in some DRIs to be able to make decisions, to be able to iterate and make sure that teams have, you know, like a healthy cadence of being able to move forward without getting in their own way. Good answer. Thanks a lot. Um, and then 
my last question, and you already know it. Um, Jason back then told me about a hidden feature you're you're building into into the new GitHub project, um, and and you yourself, I think, um, had the idea. Um, it's called the time machine feature, um, <laughs> and you just have to write into the title of an issue. You just have to write time machine, and then the year you wanna wanna travel to, um, and the, the the GitHub nickname of the person you wanna you you, you wanna travel to. Um, and we now do that uh, with yourself, and we travel to the year of 2008 when you were working as an engineering mm. manager at Google. Um, and uh, we can now observe yourself for a second, and then you have the chance to, to whisper something into your young self's ears. What what would it be? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, that tool is going to be a developer productivity nightmare. Let me just say, <laughs> how many how many things would I go back and try to change now that no I'm I'm very very fortunate and happy for what my life is today so I wouldn't want to muck with anything, but if I if I did go back to early in my time at Google, um, I think I wasn't a manager yet until 2009, but um, even so I would go back then and I would say to myself, hey, pay attention to open source. Actually, you know I think there's a fair amount of maybe arrogance at Google, sort of like we have the best developers in the world. And, you know, perhaps that that may have been uh, true at one point, but just with the scale of people working in open source today, innovation is happening in open source and open source is really where you need to be. And, and you know, we built these fantastic developer tools at Google that, you know, I'm, I'm really, you know, thankful for that experience. But the friction for having sort of a walled garden of bespoke tools at Google really made it a lot harder to both consume and contribute to open source. And, you know, I think uh, back then, if, if someone had said, you know, like, get really think about Git, you know, because that's going to win. Uh, and, and, you know, think about your model for open source. I think that would have uh, made, um, you know, Google engineers even more productive over time. But hey, now I'm working at GitHub, which is the home for open source. So it's all good for me. <laughs> you learned, you learned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So Rachel, thanks a lot for the conversation. Um, it was really like great fun. And as you can hear in the background, I already have like shouting kids here. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm just programmed to ignore shouting kids, honestly. <laughs> like, uh, you know, we work remote at GitHub. There's often kids and pets in the, in the background. And, you know, it's just something that you, you learn to tune out. <laughs> yeah, I also learned that, but... Um, at a certain uh, level of, of, of loudness, I, I simply it's distracting can't. for you. It's more distracting for you than it is for me. I'm optimized for tuning it out, believe me. It was a great conversation, Rachel. And um, I, I hope we have the chance again and maybe meet up in real life at a certain point. Thanks a oh, lot. That would be lovely. And, uh, enjoy your day. Um, have a great day. Thanks a lot, Toby. Bye-bye. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to the AlphaList podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. AlphaList is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter.
After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or, as we say in Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.